Welcome and bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines a new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard, headline boulevard, getting here is only the beginning. Sunset Boulevard, jackpot boulevard, one to one you have to go on winning. You think I've sold out dead right, I've sold out, I just keep waiting for the right offer. Comfortable quarters, regular rations, 24-hour, five-star room service. And if I'm honest, I like the lady I can't help being touched by her folly I'm treading water, taking the money Watching her sunset Well, I'm a writer L.A.'s changed a lot over the years Since those brave gold rush pioneers Came in their creaky covered wagons Far as they could go into the line Their dreams were yours, their dreams were mine But in those dreams were hidden dragons Sunset Boulevard, frenzied boulevard, swamped with every kind of false emotion. Sunset Boulevard, brutal boulevard, just like you will wind up in the ocean. But first, how are we doing? I hope this episode of The Musical Man finds you well. As always, I have a couple of announcements here before we dive right into all of the show facts regarding Sunset Boulevard. As of June 2nd, I will have nearly completed the two-week period following my second vaccination shot. Oh, I am so excited. Please make sure you are vaccinated ASAP and continue to wear masks for the health and sanity of those around you. If you are listening to our Turn It Off series, you would have already received this health and safety message, but this is the main feed, and so we want to make sure that everybody has that at the forefront of their minds. I have another announcement for you regarding the Tony Awards. Maybe you missed this in the news cycle this past week. The bulk of the 74th annual Tony Awards will stream exclusively via Paramount Plus on September 26, 2021. Later that same night, CBS will air the Tony Awards present Broadway's Back, which will include musical performances and the presentation of some awards, best play, best musical, etc. This is a, this is an insulting plan of action that will most definitely not result in a ton of people signing up for Paramount Plus, so if that's their angle, I don't think that's gonna pay off for them. Broadway is back, but we do not have time for everyone. See to be the message. Again, insulting, is it not? I agree, it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get the show facts regarding Sunset Boulevard. So much to go through. We have a historical timeline. Okay, show me the show facts. I will. We're going to start with August 10th, 1950. That's where we're starting. August 10th, 1950, Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard premieres at Radio City Music Hall. It goes on to earn a little over $5 million at the box office and secure three of the 11 Academy Awards for which it is nominated. 
A couple of fun facts regarding the film. In order to secure a relative amount of creative freedom in an era of rampant Hollywood censorship, Wilder and his co-writers Charles Brackett and D.M. Marshman Jr. told Paramount their script was an adaptation of A Can of Beans, a short story that did not actually exist. Oh, I'm so sorry. We can't make any of those changes. It would undermine the integrity of A Can of Beans. No, 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 no. We will not be doing that. Stars Gloria Swanson and William Holden were only two of the names on Billy Wilder's long list of potentials. For the part of Norma Desmond, the delusional and maniacal silent film star who is well past her prime, Wilder approached Mae West, who was offended, Greta Garbo, who was uninterested, Paula Negri, whose Polish accent made her difficult to understand, Clara Bow, who was uninterested, Norma Shearer, who was offended, and Mary Pickford, who was offended. Marlon Brando and Fred McMurray were considered for the part of Joe, the handsome young screenwriter with a massive chip on his shoulder. Montgomery Clift accepted the role only to quit shortly before filming began, most likely because his real-world affair with singer Libby Holman bore too much of a resemblance to the film's plot. She was an older woman, he was a younger man, what would people say? William Holden won the part in the end, though his weekly salary fell far short of what Montgomery Clift would have received. 1952 through 1957. Gloria Swanson, actor Richard Stapley, and cabaret pianist Dixon Hughes endeavor to write and produce a musical version of the film. The piece, originally titled Starring Norma Desmond, before being rebranded as Boulevard. That's Boulevard with an exclamation point at the end. This project made significant changes to the plot of the film. While the movie concludes with Norma killing Joe in a fit of despair, Swanson's version would have ended like a fairy tale, with the characters parting on fabulous terms. The fat cats at Paramount had given Swanson their blessing to develop her musical, but it was a verbal agreement and therefore not legally binding. In 1957, executive Russell Holman ordered Swanson to abandon the project. To quote him directly, it would be damaging for the property to be offered to the entertainment public in another form as a stage musical. A lot of the material written by Stapley and Hughes was incorporated into Swanson on Sunset, a 1994 stage show that documented Hughes' relationship with the actress. In 2008, Swanson's original demo recordings from the 1950s were published by Stage Door Records. That album, Gloria Swanson in Boulevard, is currently unavailable to download or stream. But let us now go back to the early 1960s. Stephen Sondheim and Bert Shevlove begin developing their own Sunset Boulevard musical, but a chance encounter with Billy Wilder at a cocktail party leads Sondheim to cease all efforts. When asked for his opinion on the project, which would have starred Jeanette McDonald as Norma, Wilder told Sondheim that Sunset deserved to be turned into an opera, not a musical. Sondheim cited this conversation a few years later when Hal Prince, who held the theatrical 
vocal rights to Sunset at the time, was tinkering with his own ideas for a show. Prince's take on the story would have starred Angela Lansbury, not as a silent film star, but as a legendary diva of the stage. Having been turned away by Sondheim, Hal Prince then met with John Kander and Fred Ebb. Johnny, Freddy, let's make us a musical! Their conversations bore nothing in the way of fruit. For the record, I do believe Sondheim did go on to write a Sunset Boulevard musical, and the name of that musical is Passion. Both shows are about dashing, recalcitrant men, and the suicidal women who are obsessed with them. The women are like, I love you, and the men are like, oh, uh, that's okay, I'm cool, and the women are like, love me, and the men are like, all right, fine. Both Sunset and Passion end with a tragic death. I mean, they're practically twins. Now let's examine the 1970s through the 1980s. Andrew Lloyd Webber watches Sunset Boulevard for the first time and is inspired to compose a title song for a hypothetical musical adaptation. Elements of this composition would later appear in Weber's score for Gumshoe, a 1971 detective comedy starring Albert Finney. Hal Prince still held the theatrical rights to Sunset, and though Weber expressed interest in the project, he would not hit the ground running until 1989, shortly after his latest musical, Aspects of Love, had premiered on the West End. In general, there was a lot of dithering on Weber's part when it came to developing Sunset, as he believed movies like Gumshoe would help him become a film composer. Needless to say, this did not work out. Weber's only other credit as a film composer, the only credit not related to his stage musicals, I should say, is The Odessa File, a 1974 John Voight picture. Here is the tagline from the poster for The Odessa File. Hamburg, Germany, 1963. Peter Miller is going inside the dreaded Odessa. More than a few people hope he doesn't get out. Ever. The ellipsis between doesn't get out and ever contains a whopping ten dots. Oh, more than a few people hope he doesn't get out. Dot, 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 ever. Back to Sunset Boulevard. Coincidentally, 1989, when Aspects of Love first premiered, lest we forget, was also the year Billy Wilder's film was welcomed into the Library of Congress's newly founded National Film Registry. Sunset was one of 25 films to be inducted, a freshman class that included Casablanca, Vertigo, Citizen Kane, Some Like It Hot, and Star Wars. As we continue to move through our timeline, you'll notice the name Hal Prince never comes up again. What what happened to you, Hal? When did you lose the theatrical rights? Why is your name nowhere to be found on Sunset Boulevard's IBDB page? What happened, Hal? 1991. Weber hires Amy Powers to serve as the lyricist for Sunset Boulevard. Powers, a lawyer from New York, had zero experience when it came to writing lyrics, and so Don Black was brought on board to assist her. Later that same year, an early version of the piece starring Rhea Jones as Norma and Michael Ball as Joe premiered at the 1991 Sidmonton Festival. 1992, a new version of Sunset starring Patti Lapone as Norma and Kevin Anderson as Joe premieres at the 1992 Sidmonton Festival. Don Black and Christopher Hampton are cited as the chief lyricists, with Amy Powers' name having vanished completely. Why was she selected in the first place? Did any of her work make it into the final product? 
Audiences at the 92 Cinematon Festival adored this iteration of Sunset, and we love it. Keep in mind that A, the festival was created by Weber in 1975 as a semi-private forum for workshopping his projects, and B, the festival is held at Sidmonton Court, Weber's 5,000-acre country estate. Can we say home court advantage? It's important to note several of the melodies found within the Sunset score were first written for Cricket, a piece Weber developed with Tim Rice in the mid-1980s. Weber also lifted music from Cricket when developing Aspects of Love, and as a result, it became impossible for Cricket to be produced, because nearly all of the music now lived within other projects, you see. Tim Rice was annoyed by this outcome, and really, who could blame him? July 12, 1993. Sunset Boulevard premieres at the West End's Adelphi Theater with Patti Lapone and Kevin Anderson reprising their roles. Billy Wilder attends the opening with his wife, Audrey, and Nancy Olsen, who starred in the film as Betty Schaefer. Regarding the musical, Wilder said, The best thing they did was to leave the script alone. Patti Lapone is a star from the moment she walks on stage. I have not been able to confirm if Paramount executive Russell Holman was still alive in July 1993, but let's assume he was rolling in his grave. No, no, this isn't right. The entertainment public is suffering. December December 9th, 1993, Sunset premieres in Los Angeles at the Schubert Theater with Glenn Close and Alan Campbell starring as Norma and Joe. As Close neared the end of her time with the show, producers hired Faye Dunaway as her replacement. Dunaway was eventually fired and the LA production wound up closing so it could move to Broadway. The producers claimed Dunaway simply could not handle the requirements of the role and in response Dunaway filed a lawsuit that was was settled behind closed doors. Why anyone thought they could get away with dragging Dunaway in the press is beyond me. April 19th, 1994. A revised version of the musical, which reflected the changes Weber and company had made in LA, opens on the West End with Betty Buckley and John Barrowman starring. As this era of the West End production went on, Buckley would be replaced by Elaine Page, Petula Clark, and the one and only Rita Moreno. Which brings us to the Broadway production and our nice, juicy, standard, traditional Broadway show facts. The show was the 1995 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on November 17, 1994 at the Minskoff Theater and ran for 977 performances. The book was written by Don Black and Christopher Hampton. The music was, of course, written by Andrew Lloyd Webber, and the lyrics were also written by Don Black and Christopher Hampton. The director Trevor Nunn, musical director David Caddick and Paul Bogave. Choreographer, well, we have a musical staging by credit, musical staging by Bob Avian. Scenic design, well, we have a production design credit here. Production design by John Napier. Lighting design, Andrew Bridge. Sound design, Martin Levon. Costume design, Anthony Powell. And the original Broadway cast included Alan Campbell. This is Alan's Broadway debut. Glenn Close. Okay, a quick note regarding Glenn Close. Betty 
Patty Buckley continued her relationship with Sunset when she replaced Close on Broadway. Close also starred in the Broadway revival of Sunset, which ran for a limited number of performances in 2017. Let's get back to that original Broadway cast. We have George Hearn. Hello, George. Alice Ripley. Hello, Alice. Sandra Allen. Broadway debut. Congratulations. Brian Batt. Leda Boder. Susan Don Carson. Matthew Dickens. Colleen Dunn. David Eric. Rich Hubbard. Kim Huber. Alicia Irving. Broadway debut. Lauren Kennedy. Broadway debut. Sal Mistretta. Mark Morales. Alan Oppenheimer. Rick Podell. Tom Allen Robbins. Rick Sparks. Steven Stein. Granger. Broadway debut. Vincent Tumeo, Broadway debut. And rounding us out, Wendy Walter. Broadway debut. Congratulations to all of these debuts. Tony Nods. Sunset Boulevard won the Tony Award for Best Musical, of course, but it also won Best Book of a Musical. Don Black and Christopher Hampton. Best Original Score. Andrew Lloyd Webber. Don Black and Christopher Hampton. Best Actress in a Musical. Glenn Close. Best Featured Actor in a Musical. George Hearn. Best Scenic Design. John Napier. And Best Lighting Design. Andrew Bridge. It was additionally nominated for Best Actor in a Musical. Alan Campbell. Best Costume Design. Anthony Powell. Best Choreography. Bob Avian. And Best Direction of a Musical. Trevor Nunn. So in total, 11 nominations, 7 awards. When all was said and done. I would now like to address the chief casting controversy regarding Sunset Boulevard. Weber had initially promised Patti Lapone the role of Norma Desmond on Broadway. And when Weber went back on his promise by firing her, Lapone sued and won a cool $1 million. The lesson here is you do not fuck with Patti Lapone. You don't fuck with Faye Dunaway, and you don't fuck with Patti Lapone. But we should dive into the issue further, as it was and still is a big point of contention within the theater community. Let's hear a bit of this old Entertainment Tonight segment, which attempted to shed some light on the controversy as it was developing. Sunset Boulevard is a classic film about the painful ills of movie stardom. As it turns out, the painful ills of Sunset Boulevard translate quite nicely to the stage as well. There is a big leading lady brouhaha brewing on Broadway. Glenn Close proved she can play this role better than anyone. The glowing reviews for her version of Norma Desmond knocked Patti Lapone, who opened the same show in London, out of a chance to take the show to Broadway. Now, Glenn Close will be going instead. Glenn told us this all came as a surprise to her. I know really nothing about that. I don't know what her deal was, and I, I certainly came here thinking this is all that I was going to do. Patti Lapone will not comment on all this, but she reportedly was so devastated by the news that she could not perform her London show the day she heard. Time Magazine critic William Henry III says that producer Andrew Lloyd Webber will have to pay off Patti Lapone, but that it's a calculated risk. Okay, he has to pay a million dollars or thereabouts to, uh, to take care of Lapone. This show is successful. We'll make that back in a few weeks. And if it's not successful, it'll lose ten times that much. I am in awe of how Entertainment Tonight approaches this story with the subtle touch of a sledgehammer to the ankles. Everyone hates Patty and Glenn Close is a beautiful movie star who can do no wrong. Shut up! Case closed. Regarding the question posed by Time Magazine's William Henry III, Mr. Fancy Pants, no, Sunset Boulevard was not successful. Despite its success at the box office, Patty Lapone and Faye Dunaway's 
these lawsuits combined with the show's astronomical production and advertising costs resulted in a net loss of $20 million. Hachi machi, womp womp. We will now hear clips from two separate CBS interviews with Patti Lapone. The first is from around 2005 when she was starring in the John Doyle revival of Sweeney Todd. But it has not all been smooth sailing. In 1989, she created the stage role of faded movie star Norma Desmond in the London version of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Sunset Boulevard. But she was replaced by Glenn Close in the Broadway production. Lupone was so distraught that it was a year before she could bring herself to work again. How did you do that? Prozac and a psychiatrist. Seriously? Seriously. It was devastating. The reporter in this clip emphasizes how Patty was unable to work for a year after having been fired from Sunset. This next interview, which is from 1995, finds her coming out of that seclusion for the sake of a New York City concert. How about uh, Norma Desmond in uh, Sunset Boulevard? Well, how was it to play her? Uh, that was a great tragedy. That, uh, not the experience, the play. <laughs> play also was a great tragedy. Contracted to bring the show to Broadway, Patty was abruptly fired by Weber in favor of Glenn Close. Weber's action left Patty deeply disappointed, hurt, and angry. I, you know, the experience was, I cannot begin to tell you, uh, my assistant and my husband literally scraped me up off the floor and sent me out of the stage or pulled me in off the ledge and brought me home. And I had a company that buoyed me. I mean, I, we talk about blood, talk about companies. I will never forget. I never forget the companies in England, basically, but this, I will never forget this company. We all went through it. Blood was shed. Do these things happen so that you have a richer experience in your chosen profession? Do you take the pain and come out a richer human being? Do you have a richer legend? I don't know. I don't know. I just, I know that I have to find the positive energy behind this because the negative would have destroyed me. Getting back up on a stage, I don't know what's going to happen the first night I have an audience. I don't know. I don't know whether I'm going to, I mean, they certainly did. I went out every night in, in, in sunset, but did that sap me of every possible bit of, bit of strength I had? Or am I going to be buoyed by this company and this audience? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I think I know the answer to that. Well, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. It's, it's, all, it's us. It's us. It's us. It's only us. It's only a human being behind a character. It's only a person behind an image. It's still only flesh and blood. I think I'll go. Where does everything stand these days? Well, it depends on who you ask. A Vanity Fair article from January 2018 claimed Weber and Lapone had settled their differences, but Lapone made herself quite clear when speaking with The Guardian later that year. Quote, We haven't made up. No, no. What he did. Oh, the poor guy. It seems to me he wants the kind of critical success Stephen Sondheim has. Quote, 
This is probably as good a time as any to confess that when I was in college, a professor arranged for Lapone to hold a private performance for the theater department. She answered questions after the show. I was not in attendance. No, I do not remember what I was doing that night. It was probably not important. What can I say? I was a fool. Seeing as we dedicated a good deal of time to the history of this week's subject, I think it would be best if we zipped through the plot as quickly as possible. As a certain hedgehog would say, gotta go fast! I'll never understand why I wasn't cast in the role of Sonic the Hedgehog. I was cast in the role of Chronic the Hedgehog for the purposes of a direct-to-video weed comedy, but that was only released on Amtrak TV PM, which is, of course, the streaming service made available to Amtrak passengers after 8 p.m. They also have a few episodes of the Whoopi sitcom from the early 2000s. Act 1, Hollywood, 1949. Screenwriter Joe Gillis is up Shit's Creek without a paddle. There is not a soul at Fox or Paramount who wants to produce his work, and he is very late on his car payments. It ain't all thunderclouds and sauerkraut. A meeting with script editor Betty Schaefer could result in a promising collaboration. But when a couple of thugs show up to repossess Joe's car, our boy is forced to make a run for it. See you around, Betty! Joe loses his pursuers by pulling into the driveway of a crumbling mansion on Sunset Boulevard. It is here he meets the woman who will change his life, Norma Desmond, former star of the silent silver screen. Norma may not have survived the transition to talkies, but she still receives oodles of mail from her devoted fans. The fan mail is technically written by her butler, Max von Meyerling, but Norma doesn't need to know that. Let the shambling bag of bones enjoy her fantasies. Norma is harmless, right? Norma asks Joe to polish a script she's been working on over the last few decades. The resulting film will star Norma as Salome, infamous teenage temptress of the New Testament, and it will be directed by none other than Cecil B. DeMille. Joe takes the job because Norma has money. Lots of it. Sure, the script is way too long, and yes, it's awful. And yeah, Norma is an asshole who refuses to approve a single revision. And okay, it's weird how she has Joe live at the mansion while they work, and there is absolutely no way Salome will ever be made. But Joe needs the cash, and Norma is harmless, right? Joe does manage to escape the mansion every now and then, if only to work on another project with Betty Schaefer, Blind Windows. It's a screenplay called Blind Windows. Maybe get a new title. Their relationship soon turns romantic, hello, and Betty begins to wonder if a life spent with Joe is worth breaking her engagement to Artie Green. Who's Artie Green? Why, he's Joe's best pal. Oh, no, this is getting complicated. Norma confesses that she is in love with Joe, and when he rejects her to attend Artie's New Year's Eve party, she tries to kill herself with a razor. Joe returns to her side and agrees to keep working on Salome. Act 2. Norma receives a call from Paramount. The studio's intent is unclear to everyone at the mansion. Everyone, that is, except for Norma. Don't you see? Hollywood is welcoming her back with open arms. The filming of Salome will soon commence. 
Max drives Norma and Joe to the studio where they meet with Cecil B. DeMille. He's working on a new movie, and though he had no clue Norma would be paying him a visit, he embraces her without hesitation. After all, Norma is a legend! And alright, obviously DeMille is never going to direct Salome, but it would be wrong to break the lady's heart, cruel even! It would also be cruel to explain that the studio only reached out to Norma because they want to rent her fancy Italian car. Why would, say, a butler named Max ever do that? Why would he explain that to her? What did Norma ever do to deserve that kind of pain and embarrassment? Norma is harmless, right? P.S. Max was Norma's first of three husbands. He discovered her when she was 16. It sounds kind of fucked up. I was the first husband and now I'm the butler. Yeah, I got it, Max. Thanks. Creepy. Norma races back to the mansion so she can prepare for her first day of shooting. Plucking the eyebrows, dieting, exercise. Oh, I have to get ready. Suspecting Joe and Betty have become an item, she gives Betty a ring. Ring, ring on the telephone. Dig, do, dig, do, ring, ring. And proceeds to spill the tea. He's mine, you pretty young thing. Mine! <laughs> Joe swipes the phone from Norma and tells Betty to visit the mansion so she can see it for herself. Come on over. Upon arriving, Betty is told by Joe that he actually enjoys acting as Norma's pet. I'm never gonna be your man, Betty. I'm a kept man. Go back to Artie and marry him already, you big dum-dum. Betty flees from the scene in tears. Oh! Joe announces he is leaving Norma to return to his hometown of Dayton, Ohio. See you around, Norma. And by the way, your script is poo-poo-caca and nobody likes you anymore. Nobody! Norma kills Joe by shooting him with a gun. Bang! When the police and the press show up at the mansion, she descends the main staircase as if on the set of Salome. The curtain falls as she calls out to her director. And now, Mr. DeMille, I am ready for my close-up. Is Norma a nut? Yeah, definitely, but what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? Sit on our butts and judge her for being a nut? No, Norma is harmless, right? Oh, oh, okay, hold on. I forgot about the shooting Joe with a gun thing. Yeah, seems pretty harmful, actually. All right, you got me. As a reminder, the musical Gloria Swanson wanted to write ended with Norma giving Joe and Betty her blessing before the couple walked off into the sunset. Bad ending, Gloria. For the purposes of this week's episode, I watched the 1950 motion picture, the Billy Wilder film. It's true, it's true. The musical removes several scenes that seem to beg for musicalization, including Norma's Charlie Chaplin routine and an evening of bridge with Buster Keaton, among others. But I can't help but wonder what Weber would have done with the film's original opening. That involved Joe's corpse swapping stories with other dead men at a morgue. When this elicited laughter from several test audiences, Wilder dropped the scene in favor of the opening we have today. Can you imagine a musical version of Sunset Boulevard that begins with singing and dancing corpses? It would be like Michael Jackson's Thriller meets the Cell Block Tango. These are the sort of ideas that would get me blacklisted on Broadway. I listened to the 1993 original London cast album as well as the 1994 original Los Angeles 
Wireless cast album. A Broadway album was never produced, presumably because nearly everyone from the LA cast reprised their roles in New York. The only exception is Judy Kuhn, who was replaced by Alice Ripley in the role of Betty. I then watched the 1995 Tony Awards performance of As If We Never Said Goodbye. Here are a few of the comments from the YouTube upload of this performance from user Rod Olson. Quote, Glenn was way too over the top. Her character as Norm Desmond never grew crazy. And her voice, gross, horrible, screaming and off-key everywhere. Quote, I would venture to say if you reference the character as Norm Desmond, you have no business giving notes, but what do I know? From user Frank Moran, quote, This performance was beyond meta, beyond garish and over the top. It looked like a haunted amusement park attraction, but that's the culmination of Close's career, the monster, the grotesque, quote, this comment was written six months ago. Why do people act like this? These people think of themselves as fans of the theater? You don't like the theater. Take a look in the mirror, Frank. Maybe the monster is you. Maybe, maybe, maybe. From user Classy Contralto, quote, Whilst Lapone and Paige are better technical singers than Glenn Close, neither of them come near her emotional connection with the character and the words. Lapone in particular is too young and comes across as quite cold and dead in my opinion. Quote, I was fascinated by the idea that Lapone was too young to play the part of Norma, so I broke out my calculator and I did a little math. I looked up some birthdays is what I did. In the film and the musical, Norma is cited as specifically being 50 years old. Rhea Jones was 24 when she originated the role for the stage at the 91 Sidmonton Festival. Patti Lapone was 43, Glenn Close was 44, Betty Buckley was 45, Elaine Page was 46, Faye Dunaway was 52, Diane Carroll was 60, and both Rita Marino and Petula Clark were 64, thereabouts. The average age of all of these actresses is 49. Based on these findings, I would say the casting actually consistently aligned with the age of the original character. The only outlier is Rhea Jones. She was 24. Wowzers. Eartha Kitt was 66 when Sunset premiered in London, and while I realize her instrument and range are quite different when compared to the other performers we've mentioned, I am in love with the idea of Eartha Kitt as Norma Desmond. It would have been amazing. Rounding out these sources of ours, I listened to the 1995 original Toronto cast album starring Diane Carroll, and I watched Betty Buckley's performance of As If We Never Said Goodbye on YouTube. Based on this bootleg clip of questionable quality, I have to name Betty as my Norma of choice. She had me tearing up within 30 seconds, and when the crowd gave her a standing ovation, I stood right alongside them. Betty, oh boy, you got me in your pocket. In your corner is what you do. Let's talk about the score. You've got to give me some work. I'll take whatever's on offer. There must be some shit that needs a rewrite. Throw it my way. I only wish I could help. There's no spare shit at the moment. 
Remember the greatest writers Dodd and Garrett didn't care about pay Are you trying to be funny? I believe in self-denial Gives a man some moral backbone Can you loan me 300 bucks? I'm sorry, Gillis, goodbye <sighs> I just love types of numbers that dominate Weber, Black, and Hampton's score for Sunset Boulevard. There are the Norma Desmond numbers, which involve our lead waltzing through a mental fog, and the Hollywood numbers, which focus on the starry-eyed hopefuls and cynical phony balonies who populate the City of Angels. Let's Have Lunch is the first and best example of the Hollywood numbers. It's corny and insincere by design, fueled by little more than the hot air of up wannabes, and I enjoy hearing them slice through the air with their stiff greetings and sour complaints. It's very cheesy, very fun. What I don't enjoy is how the LA version of lunch goes out of its way to invoke foul language. Call me a pilgrim, prude if you must, but hearing Sheldrake call someone a shithead and sing, Joe, what the fuck brings you here, is embarrassing. That's embarrassing. None of that exists on the London recording, so what is it doing here? Are we trying to make the show sound more American? I should say this is first heard on the L.A. album, so that's my theory, that they were trying to make it sound more American, quote-unquote. As it existed in London, Sunset Boulevard only had a pair of Hollywood numbers, Let's Have Lunch, of course, but also this time next year. But by the time the show premiered in L.A., a third Hollywood number had been added, Every Movie's a Circus! Circus appears fully formed midway through Act 1, but Weber and company tease it with a brief exchange between Betty and Joe. Let's hear that now. Come on, get off your high horse. Writers with pride don't live in L.A. Silence, exile, and cunning. Those are the only cards you can play. Sheldrake won't buy the story. He likes trash with fairy lights. Jesus, think of the effort Trying to get him to heighten his sights Every movie's a circus Can't we discuss this? Schwab's Thursday night What for? Nothing will happen I gotta go now Fight the good fight What's the rush? This banter does a fine job of establishing the dynamic of our ingenues, with Betty as the go-getter and Joe as the stick in the mud. It takes way too long for that dynamic to evolve over the course of the show, and after a while you start to wonder if Betty has any agency at all, but as a starting point, I like this well enough. What I respect is how casually Betty employs the circus metaphor. Oh, you know, every movie's a circus. 
If Weber and company had left that card on the table, I would have applauded their light touch and restraint. But no, every movie's a circus is only just beginning. It's gestating, it's growing, and we'll experience the bloated, wholly unnecessary version later on. So do me a favor and put a pin in that, okay, will ya? The circus will come back to town to haunt us, believe me. I, uh, I forgot to mention how Norma buries a dead chimpanzee shortly after Joe pulls into her driveway. Now, what can I say? Sometimes a dead chimpanzee slips right by you. But yes, Norma is mourning the death of her chimpanzee. She sings a lullaby to the corpse, which you would have heard just now. The name of the lullaby is Surrender. What was the name of the chimp? We had room for the chimp, but none. No room for the chaplain routine or the bridge scene. You can't sit there and tell me a chaplain sequence would have been any goofier than the chimpanzee lullaby. is the first of four Norma Desmond numbers one encounters while strolling along Sunset Boulevard. The others being New Ways to Dream, The Perfect Year, and As If We Never Said Goodbye. I almost excluded The Perfect Year as Joe's presence briefly transforms that song into a duet, but all of these numbers are similarly wistful and erratic, and so we must place all of them under a single umbrella. Do we need all of them? No. With One Look is a gloriously bombastic introduction that draws a sharp, harsh outline for the character, an outline that is filled in by the perfect year and as if we never said goodbye. New Ways to Dream is a little more than clutter and should be replaced with a good book scene, but I have a feeling I'm in the minority when it comes to that opinion. What makes With One Look really pop for me is the line from Don Black and Christopher Hampton's book that immediately follows it. The song is over, the applause has dissolved, and Norma has only one thing to say to her intruder. Now go. There's no way this didn't result in a well-deserved laugh every single night. Alright, show's over, stupid. Beat it! There's no real need to examine the Salome sequence from stem to stern, but I would like to hear Patti Lapone's delivery of of the line, I hate that word. It's a return. I wrote this 
It's for DeMille to direct. Uh-huh. I didn't know you were planning a comeback. I hate that word. It's a return. Everything you need to know about Patty's approach to Norma can be found in that isolated reading. This is a woman who pulls from a frightfully deep well of emotion. Norma, I mean. The fire in Norma's belly has not gone out yet, but more often than not, her anger and her sorrow are overshadowed by sheer exhaustion. Glenn Close is more interested in sharpening Norma's teeth and fangs, and her line readings reflect that. They're more violent, more animalistic. If that's your bag, keep calm and carry on, I guess, but I prefer a Norma who stockpiles her energy for as long as she can before going on the attack. As mentioned previously, a good portion of the Sunset Boulevard score was lifted from Cricket, but I'll be damned if I don't hear the Phantom of the Opera in Max's mournful soliloquy, The Greatest Star of All. The ascension, the ramp-up, I should say, and final power note heard in the music of the night. Let your soul take you where you long to be, you know it. That is replicated here. She's immortal, caught inside that flickering light beam, is a youth which cannot fade. It's the same thing. Is Weber aware of these parallels? Are they Easter eggs for the listener? Or does he believe he is writing this stuff for the first time? I could go into a pint-sized rant about his adaptation of Cinderella and how it's clearly ripping off Rogers and Hammerstein, but we need to stay on schedule. I find Max to be unintentionally hilarious. George Hearn is a champ for pushing through this maudlin slop with a straight face. But all I hear is Max from Cats Don't Dance. Yes, Miss Dimple. I'll tell you this. Max should not be repeating Norma's line about the pictures and how they got small and what have you. We just heard Norma say that no less than five minutes ago. That line belongs to Norma, Max. Stop riding her coattails. I'm up too early, shooting at seven. I gotta go. Movies. What's wrong? Can't get a screen test. Don't you hate it when a yes man says no? Movies. Good part. I'm a policeman. Hands up, punk. That's all I say. 
first time you worked on the lot there. I must say, R-K-O-R-O-K. Then what? He pressed a button. Out of the wall fell a four-poster bed. Busy. They shot my screenplay. Isn't that great? No, they shot the thing dead. Every movie's a circus on the the circus is back in town. Circus is back on the menu, boys. I told you to put a pin in the circus. Perhaps you were confused as to what Betty meant when she first said every movie's a circus. Well, don't worry because the actors and technicians at Paramount Studios are here to explain it further. See, every movie's a circus. On the wire without a net. Doi, 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 doi. Every movie's a circus. The director is the ringleader and the actors are his clowns. Like a movie, the circus is just an act. Smoke and mirrors, nothing more. Doi, 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 doi. With this reprise, Sunset officially crosses the border separating fun schlock from brain dead. Isn't this show long enough? I absolutely have to sit through even more of these vignettes in which actors complain about the industry. Granted, I both love and hate when it comes time for the actors to mutter movies under their breath movies. It is such a stupid, stupid choice. But if you took it away from me, I'd probably miss it. Movies. The circus reprise contains a joke we basically hear again during this time next year. Here's the first version. They shot my screenplay. Isn't that great? No, they shot the thing dead. And here's the variation. My resolution is to write something that gets shot with approximately the plot I first had in my head. But you'll get rewritten even after you're dead. Get it? Shot dead? Here's the thing. The same characters are present in both of these exchanges. Their names are Joanna and Myron. Who the hell are Joanna and Myron? Why are they haunting me? Why do they have only one joke? Help, movies! This is a surprise celebration. I hope you've remembered everything I've said. I want to see a total transformation. What's all this? Happy birthday, darling. Did you think we'd forgotten? Well, I don't know. These people are from the best men's shop in town. I had them close it down for the day. Norman, I'll listen. I leave you boys to it. Shopathon, what's going on? Help yourself, it's all been taken care of. Anyone who's anyone is dressed by me. Well, golly gee, pick out anything you'd like a pair of. You just point, I'll do the rest. I brought nothing but the best. You're a very lucky rider. Come along now, get undressed. Unless I must mistaken, that's a 42-inch chest. I don't understand the words you're saying. Well, all you need to know is the lady's paying. I love flannel on a man. This will complement his tan. Wait, take two of these and four of those. I'm still your greatest fan. Very soon now, we'll have stopped him looking like an ran. You're gonna make me sorry that I'm staying. Well, all right, I'll choose after all I'm paying. Evening clothes. I want to see your most deluxe. Won't wear a tux. Of course not, dear. Tuxedos are for waiters. What we need 
dog tails, a white tie, and top hat. I can't wear that. Joe's second-rate clothes are for second-raters. Norma, please shut up, I'm rich, not some platinum blonde bitch. My impression of the ladies paying is as follows. Shut the fuck up, Joe, you need a nice new suit. I'm not a fruit. Because the whole number is generally homophobic, you see. Is it really homophobic? I mean, yes, it is. I'm not going to explain myself further. Why is Joe so clueless throughout this number, and why are the lyrics so thunderously stupid? Happy birthday, welcome to your shopathon. What's going on? What do you mean, what's going on? What do you mean by that? Norma rented out the staff of a menswear store. They're fitting you for new clothes. She told you that. But I don't understand a word these hysterical queens are saying. I'm pretty sure you're the hysterical queen, Joe. Circling back to the issue of foul language, and I understand my criticisms are ironic, considering my own fucking mouth. The following lyrics were added to the ladies paying for the LA production. Glenn Close screams, shut up, I'm rich, not some platinum blonde bitch. This is a dreadful, disorienting, and annoying moment, and I for one am glad Patty was not around to be demeaned by it. I was hoping Diane Carroll wouldn't have to say this, but she did, and it sucks. You see, the thing with these American chaps is that they express themselves like squealing stuck pigs. Yeah, well, fuck you too. I'm coming out of makeup. The light's already burning. Till the cameras will start turning And the early morning madness And the magic in the making Yes, everything's as if we never said goodbye I don't want to be alone That's all in the past This world's waited long enough not a single song within Sunset Boulevard that can hold a candle to as if we never said goodbye. It is the showstopper and everyone involved knows as much. Betty's take may be my favorite, but Diane Carroll is lighting up the night with her rendition, which is why I chose to feature it here. Remember, you can have your preferences, you should have preferences, but there's no need to be nasty about it, like some greasy YouTube users I know. Here's what I really like about the lead-up to this song. Norma's interaction with a certain spotlight operator named Hogeye. We should probably hear every version of this exchange from every major cast album, London, Los Angeles, and Toronto. Hawkeye, it's your time to shine, buddy. Miss Desmond? Hey, Miss Desmond! Now up here, Miss Desmond! It's Hawkeye! Hawkeye! 
get a look at you. Miss Desmond? Hey! Hey, hey, Miss Desmond! Up here, Miss Desmond! It's Hawkeye! Hawkeye! Well, hello? Let's get a look at you! part, everyone who plays Norma makes the same choice. Sure, they know Hawkeye, of course. Hawkeye, hello! But for the purposes of the Tony Awards, you wouldn't have heard this in the montage we just played for you, but in the Tony Awards performance, Glenn Close chooses wary skepticism in the face of Hawkeye's greeting. Oh, Hawkeye, hello, Max! It's very funny. It is now time to discuss Sunset's finale, which is typically presented on the albums as a mammoth 11 to 12 minute track. As is my want, I'm going to compare London's finale to that of Los Angeles. In London, the musical ends almost exactly like the movie. Max calls lights, camera, action. Norma, in character as Salome, then silently descends the staircase before stopping to address whom she believes to be her crew. Let us hear the London finale now. Lights! Cameras! Action! with the scene. I'm too happy. May I say a few words, Mr. DeMille? I can't tell you how wonderful it is to be back in the studio making a picture. I promise you, I will never desert you again. This is my life. It always will be. There is nothing else. Just us. The cameras and all you wonderful people out there in the dark. And now, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close up.
Again, this is just like the movie. Norma delivers her world-famous close-up line, and the orchestra takes us out with a grand flourish. We're not messing with a proven formula. Now let's hear how Los Angeles handled this same series of moments. Lights! Cameras! studio making a picture. I promise you, I'll never desert you again. This is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the cameras and all you wonderful people out there in the dark. Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. sing about a severed head while descending the staircase is a mistake. Having her go on to sing even more after delivering the close-up line? Dreadful. No one wants to hear Norma wailing right now. Let Wilder's dialogue speak for itself and call it a day is what I say. Again, it's not as if we're suffering from a lack of music here. Norma has had plenty of opportunities to sing and should not go out shrieking like a banshee. Seriously, Glenn, this is Rita Repulsa level acting. I have expected her to shout, Make my monster grow! I will award the LA album points for dropping in gunshots that sound reasonably realistic and not like something out of an old Ninja Gaiden video game. Here are the LA gunshots. Mm -hmm. 
Goodbye, Norma. No one ever leaves a star. All right, and here are the London gunshots. You'd have been better off having me say bang, 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 bang. That's all I have to say in regards to the Sunset Boulevard score, and we are now going to hear from our fine sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. I am special. I am very special. Oh, I think of things that no one has ever thought of in their life. Oh, my God. The things that I come up with. For example, you might drink 5678 coffee. We all do. I love 5678 coffee. You love 5678 coffee. That doesn't make us special. It's all in how you use the coffee. Now, you, for example, you're not special like me. I am 16 years old. I am special. You are not special. You drink what? You drink the coffee from a thermos or a mug or a little a little teacup? What do you put the coffee in a teacup? What are you, a maniac? I wouldn't do that. No! I am young. I'm filled with life and originality. Oh, I invent things is what I do. You know what I do? I use the coffee as a weapon. I hurl it. I hurl it from the receptacle, the thermos, the mug. I would never use a teacup. You're out of your mind. I would hurl the coffee in the face of the boy who likes me. Matt. Ooh, Matt Huckleby. I would throw that coffee into his face and I would laugh. I would go, <laughs> what a sissy. Deal with it. Deal with it, I tell you. <laughs> but that's just me. You know, it's very hard being special. Right now I'm squeezing my hand so hard and my skin is turning blue and purple and that is a wonderful sensation. <laughs> oh, I love to watch the tears roll down Matt's face as he claws at his flesh. <laughs> The coffee's not even hot. It's cold. Oh, no. Come on. What am I doing? I'm not burning his flesh. You thought I was burning his flesh? He's a sissy is what I tell you. He's a big, overdramatic slob is what he is. Five, six, seven, eight coffee. You can count on it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. That's how many years I've been on this earth. And I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory. Goodbye. <laughs> Final thoughts regarding Sunset Boulevard. There is too much going on in Sunset Boulevard. A show I like, but it is too crowded. The plate is too full, is what I say. We need to clear off some of the excess in the name of reasonable nutritional standards. Do we need macaroni and cheese and lasagna, steak and pork chops, pudding and pie? Let us tighten our belts and eliminate some of these redundancies. My instincts told 
told me Don Black and Christopher Hampton had connections to Frank Wildhorn, I was right, but their collaborations were disappointing, I'm sorry to say. Black and Hampton wrote the book and lyrics for Dracula, and Black wrote the lyrics for Bonnie and Clyde. Are these the most boring and uninspired Wildhorn musicals? All signs point to yes. The answer to the question was not Wonderland, by the way. Wonderland is underrated. While we're on the subject, Jack Murphy wrote the lyrics for Wildhorn's adaptation of The Count of Monte Cristo, and one of the songs from that score is called Every Day a Little Death. If I have already brought this up on the podcast, I do not apologize because it is fascinating. Now, as a reminder, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was, of course, Sunset Boulevard, and the only other show nominated that season was Smokey Joe's Cafe. So it was a it was a showdown between Sunset Boulevard and Smokey Joe's Cafe, it was. And do I think Sunset Boulevard deserved to win the Tony Award for Best Musical? Yes. Over Smokey Joe's Cafe? Yes, I do. That's the answer I give to you. <laughs> That's it. Okay, let's rank Sunset Boulevard against all of the other shows we've talked about here on the podcast. As a reminder, if you want to check out this ranking for yourself, go to our Twitter page, our Twitter profile, twitter.com slash musicalmanpod. Go to the like section, click on the first tweet that you find there. It will take you to a Google sheet. The second tab on that sheet is the ranking. That's where you'll find the ranking, I should say. You can also use our link tree. I gotta remember to promote the link tree more often. Okay, Sunset Boulevard where do you fall on this ranking? I'm going to put you at number 52. That is between Kinky Boots at number 51 and Xanadu at number 53. You never know how these things might change, though. Things could shift around. They tend to do that. I have a few pieces of show-related ephemera for you. Hey, remember when Kevin Spacey hosted the Tony Awards a few years back and he dressed up like Norma Desmond and he sang, I'm coming out of makeup. Neither do I. The first piece of ephemera is from the Carol Burnett Show. This is a sketch that is generally known as Nora Desmond at a Restaurant. Carol Burnett plays the part of Nora, Nora Desmond, and Harvey Corman plays the butler, Max. Let's hear that sketch. Hello, Armand. You have a table for Miss Nora Desmond. Nora Desmond coming here? wonder to be mobbed by thousands of her worshipping fans. Right, I understand, yes. We must keep it quiet at the great Nora Desmond. This star who single-handedly made Hollywood what it was is coming out of retirement to eat. Oh, you can trust me, Max. <laughs> oh, Max. Max, don't let the autograph hounds hurt me, please, Max, please. Do not worry, madam. I will protect you, as I have, day and night for the past 40 years. <laughs> Thank you, Max. I don't want anyone to know I'm here, not even me. Do you understand? I'm sorry, madam. Max, yes. I feel as if I'm being watched. It's nobody, madam. It's only a picture of Rudolph Valentino. Nonsense, Max. Rudy hasn't made a picture in years. <laughs> However, I'll say hello to him anyway. <laughs> hello, Rudy. How have you been? What's the matter with Rudy? Why doesn't he answer me? He only made silent pictures. <laughs> 
The second piece of ephemera I have for you is an August 3rd, 1970 segment from the Dick Cavett Show. Dick is interviewing Gloria Swanson and Janis Joplin simultaneously in this segment. For context, Gloria hands Dick a small stack of index cards shortly after coming on stage. These cards bear a number of jokes, witticisms. Dick is a little unclear on the matter. He seems to be confused in general. Let's hear that. Remember the line in Sunset Boulevard and Gloria Swanson said they don't make faces like that anymore. Here is a lovely lady, Miss Gloria Swanson. We didn't give you a long enough entrance to fill all the music. Here's something for you that you can give to people as your card. Please don't make a big fuss over me. Just treat me as you would any other brilliant person. You, you saying hang funny signs on your wall? No, but don't, just... don't just sit there worry. I think there's one of those in my office. Why are you handing oh. out cards, Miss Swanson? Because I thought they were very amusing for you especially. Well, you're yeah, very kind. Like any other brilliant person. Oh. How do you do? Silver-tongued devil, you. I beg your pardon? What'd you say? You said you were a silver-tongued devil. <laughs> no, those are not mine. Those are not so, mine. I wish they were. They were given to me, and I thought you might use them. Thank you very much. Thank you for, uh, you sent me a photograph of a sculpture you did. It was very nice. Oh, yes, you got that. Yeah. You're still after my features? Yes, I am. Yeah? I want to do his head. You know what I mean by that? Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) Do his head is a little bit awkward, isn't it? I don't know. know. Do you think she knows what we mean by that? I don't know what anyone's talking about. I... <laughs> well, I must say, I you people use your inside terms and they just go right over my head. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I did. A, I sent a, a photograph of a bust I made of myself, a head with yeah. mirrors. And so I wanted to do his head. Mm. And it sounds so funny to say, I want to do your head. I know. It's bust a... doesn't sound any better What's either. Wrong? I want to do your bust. Do your bust is no good. <laughs> <laughs> I guess not. I, I, I would like to sculpt you, I think, is probably the best thing you can say. that sounds odd, doesn't it? Sounds a little blunt. <laughs> and the last piece of ephemera I have for you today is the original trailer for Gumshoe, the detective comedy from 1971 starring Albert Finney. Let's get to that! Betty Gindley, small-time club comedian who wants to be a big somebody. All he needs is an angle. What do you want to do? Write the Maltese Falcon, I want to record Blue Suede Shoes, and I want to play Las Vegas. They've done the first two. That's the rumor. You're a bloody nut. I owe it all to you, Doc. What's this? I'm advertising. There's no law against wishing you a Humphrey Bogart, but if you advertise for trouble, you may get more than you bargained for. I'm looking for Gindley. Gindley, the private investigator. Oh, I'm the comedian. The private investigator. Oh, what do you want with him? I have a job for him. Oh, what kind of a job? It's a private investigating kind of a job. A fat fee from a fat man and a heater he needs like a hole in the head. It's not his bag at all, but Gindley bluffed his way in. Now he has to keep playing. Ever since the Maltese Falcon, Eddie's wanted to be a gumshoe. Now let's see what kind of a bogeyman he really is. Move an inch, fat man, and I'll yell copper. Play it again, Gindley. He's looking at you, kid. I'm 
enjoying the music from this trailer, I have to say. I have to assume it's most likely from Weber's score. The trailer ends with Albert Finney tossing a Molotov cocktail into a house and firing a gun in the air while standing in the street. The cocktail does explode. It is quite violent. This is a comedy? That's my question. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, Dump Trucks, a filthy musical. Everyone ready? And then away we go. Okay, we are in the 1960s. Groovy, baby. This is a 1963 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It ran for 774 performances. This episode of the podcast will drop on June 16th. I've been giving you time to figure it out. Do you know what it is? 1963 nominee. Tick-tock, tick-tock. It's Oliver, Oliver. Oliver. I don't know the lyrics. <laughs> We're going to be talking about Oliver with an exclamation point. That is the subject of our next main feed episode. And again, that will drop June 16th. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly payout is donated to the Black Lives Matter organization. We do not keep a cent of those donations. You can donate $1, 3 5 or $10 a month. If you donate $1 a month, you get Monday early access to all of our main feed episodes. You get a weekly verbal shout-out. Thank you so much for donating at least $1 a month. Jack, Vitor, Sydney, Katie, Elena, Anton, Ross, HJG, Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marcus, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. You also get 13 bonus episodes regarding the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, the trailer for the film Cats, ABC's The Little Mermaid, Made Live, a review of the film Cats, a review of the stage musical Emma, Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, Hamilton via Disney+, Plus, Documentary Now, original cast album, Co-op, John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey, Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square, Arlo the Alligator Boy, and the trailer for Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. You also get season 112 episodes of Radio Boy, that is a special series for which I check in with myself and the songs that make me feel feel more like myself, thank you. And finally, you also get M3, The Movie Musical Man, a series for which we watch trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. If you donate $3 a month, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. Who do you want to hear from? We'll arrange it. You also get season one, ten episodes of Wildcats Everywhere, the high school musical podcast, as well as a special episode regarding Julie and the Phantoms. $5 a month will net you everything I've already described, plus you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss here on the podcast. If it was nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical and we have not already talked about it, you can make me talk about it. You also get seasons one and two, that's 24 episodes of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera. You get access to our Broadway and Chicago review series and volumes one and two of Shout About It, those 
or collections of five, six, seven, eight coffee ads and musical shoutouts from the first 50 episodes of the show. $10 a month will get you everything I've already described, plus you get exclusive announcements regarding future subjects of the main feed. You get season one, 12 episodes of The Snub Club. That's a show dedicated to Broadway musicals that were not nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. And finally, you get access to our brand new series. It is ongoing right now. It's known as Turn It Off. It's dedicated to off-Broadway musicals. Those episodes are coming out every other week. We have already covered Emojiland, Soft Power, and The Fantastics, so the next episode is going to be all about We Are the Tigers. If you're listening to the show via Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, please take a minute to write a five-star review for the show. We want to have a total of 65-star reviews. Once we get to that point, I will record a special episode all about Disney's Zombies franchise. Zombies and Zombies 2. It's true. We have a total of 47. We haven't had any new five-star reviews since March. That is embarrassing. Get on it. If you're listening to this episode, I'm yelling at you. I have begged, I have pleaded, and now I am yelling at you. Maybe you're streaming the show. I don't know. Maybe you're streaming it via Spotify, Stitcher, Audible, or Podbean. Musicalmanpod.podbean.com Follow us on Twitter at MusicalManPod and email me at MusicalManPod at gmail.com Thanks as always to Patty and Benny. Oh my gosh, you're amazing. Patty, Benny, I have not... I have not mentioned you once throughout this episode. What is wrong with me? Oh my gosh. You are amazing. I'm so happy to be so close to my full vaccination status. We are going to be the three musketeers, I tell you what. We're going to be back in each other's faces soon enough. Oh, it's going to be so wonderful. Thank you to Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and thank you to Zach Little for our fabulous intro and outro themes. Oh, you know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh well. We'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off Wiedersehen, and good night.